listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 133. Today, we're going to look at Trump's amazingly non-existent infrastructure plan, the ongoing effects on workers of privatizing, well, pretty much everything, and the attacks on public sector workers, including the Friedrichs case and its follow-up. But before we get to all that, a brief stop in this week's news. White supremacy has been the big topic of the last couple of weeks as a violent gathering of white nationalists of various stripes in Charlottesville, Virginia, killed one woman, Heather Hare, and injured at least 20 people. And Donald Trump, at least, you know, first failed to condemn the protests and then doubled down on what sounded very much like support for the white nationalists. Since then, massive protests have been called across the country, tens of thousands in the streets in Boston to confront white supremacy and to counter the gatherings of white supremacists. In California's Bay Area this weekend, a massive rally is in the works, the Rally Against Hate, to counter another white supremacist gathering, and many unions are among its sponsors, which is the rally is designed, of course, to outnumber the white supremacists and hopefully make them go home. In particular, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, Local 10, we've talked about them on this show before, uh, voted in favor of halting work to march on August 26th. Their resolution says, quote, in the best tradition of our union that fought these right-wingers in the big strike of 1934, will not work on that day and instead march to Chrissy Field to stop the racist fascist intimidation in our hometown and invite all unions and anti-racist and anti-fascist organizations to join us defending unions, racial minorities, immigrants, LGBTQ people, women, and all the oppressed. Meanwhile, in North Carolina, where protesters pulled down a statue of a Confederate soldier outside of the Durham County Courthouse, fighting for workers has always been linked to fighting white supremacy. I spoke recently with Angaza Laughing House of Black Workers for Justice about how the violence in Charlottesville was nothing strange to union organizers in the South and more. One of the things that we do as a union is we oftentimes go to the workplaces, whether it's street maintenance, it's the sanitation yard, and Usually they're in areas where people have to drive down a road, get into the, uh, you know, the, their workplace to pick up their trucks, their sewer trucks or their equipment. While we're um, handing out the flyers, oftentimes some of the anti-union and some of the, you know, the people who have white supremacist, old white supremacist ideas and they're union haters, a goddamn union communist organizer, try to, try to, you know, buy you, try to hit you. Not just a question of just protest. And rallies. This is in the right to work South. This white supremacist thinking is institutionalized. It's everywhere. Part of the anti-union right to work climate. Yeah, if you could tell us a little bit more about your history in North Carolina, um, starting way back. You've been confronting this stuff for a long time. What brought me back to North Carolina, although I've been here in North Carolina every summer of my life since I was born mm-hmm. in 1952. Um, been here every summer of my life. Uh, what brought me back was the murder of those five union organizers, political activists in Greensboro. This was the historic uh, Greensboro Massacre of the Thirds, 1979. Uh, when the Klan um, came into a black community known as Morningside Heights and gunned down by the um, organizers, community and union organizers, who are having a rally and a long history. Also working down, as a lawyer, uh, working down in um, rural areas, 
particularly Newton Grove, Johnson County, the, the, the more what we call the Black Belt region. Part of African Americans live. I work with farm worker services. There again, uh, it was very apparent the role that these white supremacists played intimidating the workers. Yeah. They would cheat them out of their wages. They would work them overtime without paying them. Spray them. Uh, spray the fields with pesticides, knowing the workers were still working in the fields. Well, uh, in light of um, uh, what's happening in our workplaces, I think we have to take up this discussion of why all workers have to try to, you know, make every effort to defeat white supremacy, yeah. this white socialism and, and, and neo-fascist sort of popular movements that's developing. The reason why is it keeps workers divided in our workplaces where we can't unionize and, and, and win basic uh, rights and better conditions and wages in our workplace. Many of us have heard about the recent uh, uh, loss uh, down in Mississippi, um, that auto workers union organizing of the Nissan plant down mm -hmm. there in Mississippi. Uh, it's just very important to take time out to see how this impacts our workplace. That was Angaza Laughing House of Black Workers for Justice, and you can support the folks in Durham at durhamsolidaritycenter.org. Coming off the grim news of another disappointing election loss in the South, a potentially damaging scandal has erupted from the UAW's top brass in the Rust Belt. The latest spate of controversy involves UAW officials at the center of a federal corruption investigation, as the Detroit Free Press reports, quote, involving Fiat Chrysler executives and union officials who allegedly stole worker training funds to buy trips, designer clothes, a Ferrari, a shotgun, and two $37,500 Montblanc pens. Right. Retired Associate Director Vidal King provided the salacious details. But beyond all the dirty details, even if these cases are exceptional, even if they're sensationalized a bit by the media, it signals a truly terrible disconnect between the types of high-level wheeling and dealing that often takes place in contract negotiations, and that's an open secret, and the struggles of the rank and file every day trying to hold on to a livelihood in the middle of an assault on American manufacturing and blue-collar jobs more broadly. This case is still unfolding, of course, but it appears to involve what a federal court is reviewing as an alleged conspiracy that involved the theft of overall more than $4.5 million in auto worker training funds. Union officials were allegedly lavished with expensive gifts ranging from concert tickets to firearms, yes, but in the backdrop of all the rotten self-dealing was a much more serious accusation. Former Chrysler Labor Chief Al Iacobelli was indicted on charges of stealing $1.2 million in employee training funds and funneling it to other union officials while pocketing $1 million in training funds for himself no doubt to beef up his own professional credentials. The idea of union leadership literally raiding the resources of its own members' coffers is almost the perfect metaphor for the kind of corruption that many see as endemic to the hierarchical structure of many mainstream labor groups. And clearly, it does not do much to boost confidence that unions or organized labor generally is in a position to do right by its workers if it's always in bed with its corporates. Again, this is just one corruption scandal, does not represent the entire UAW as a whole, but it is at the very least a distraction and at worst a detraction from the many stalwart efforts of the frontline organizers doing the hard work every day of building solidarity in the shop floor. Hopefully that's a much more representative picture of the labor struggle today, and that's what we hope to bring you more of here. 
As we discussed on episode 121 of this here podcast, Missouri Governor Eric Greitens recently signed a bill making the state a so-called right-to-work state, which has been, of course, a goal of the right wing in that state for decades. But as we discussed back then, the state's labor movement did not intend to just sit back and take the assault. Instead, this week, organized labor turned in more than 310,000 signatures in order to ensure that the measure would be on the ballot in 2018 and that Missourians get to vote on what they want their state to look like. Missourians have the right to vote in such a referendum on any measure passed by the legislature and not vetoed by the governor, and reporters note that while of late this referendum option hasn't been exercised, the last time was in 1982, it has been successful all but twice. The state's unions are upfront about the fact, of course, that they are backing the measure to overturn the law, which would allow workers protected by a union contract to avoid paying fair share fees for the cost of their representation. On the other side, though, the pro-right-to-work side is a whole lot of dark money. I know our listeners are very shocked to hear that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars routed through nonprofits in order to avoid disclosing who those donors of those hundreds of thousands of dollars are. The battle is likely to be loud, messy, and expensive, but the massive number of signatures, which of course was more than three times as many as was necessary to get the issue on the ballot, is an impressive sign that Missouri unions are not just going to lay down and take this. We will keep you updated on this fight, and if you are in Missouri, feel free to reach out to us at belabored@dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored and tell us all about it. Well, since he's already campaigning for his re-election, Trump seems to be finally trying to make good on his last campaign's keystone promise on trade policy, to undo NAFTA and replace it with something better, maybe. No one really seems to know what the hell that is. So far, Trump has managed to open up, barely, tripartite talks involving Canada and Mexico, but the chaos in Washington has dampened any real debate on where U.S. trade policy might go under Trump's pro-corporate economic nationalist agenda. Both businesses and unions are wary that they'll end up with a raw deal. The AFL-CIO, for its part, is somehow not yet ready to give up on Trump, so they issued a list of demands that focus on raising labor standards both inside the U.S. and among trading partners. The union leadership argued in its June 12th memo that Equitable economic development, whether for the United States, for North America, or globally, requires fundamental changes to trade policy, that trade deals must stimulate international commerce while simultaneously promoting a virtuous cycle of wage-driven growth and high standards of protection for working families in our very democracy. Close quote. They call for tighter oversight of labor code enforcement in all the trading partners' systems, stronger job production for key industries, and transnational collective bargaining rights for unions. This kind of labor-focused approach is critical for a fair trade system. Nonetheless, the current trade regime is obviously a less than ideal place to initiate such an agenda, given that they are fundamentally supernatural systems of corporate arbitrage and governance designed to maximize exploitation of workers and maximize profit for shareholders and other profiteers. And of course, while the commander-in-chief is ranting about building a border wall and busy trying to mass deport millions of people, it seems that our so-called economic nationalist president is more interested in corporate tax breaks for his buddies than in protecting democracy at the border or on either side of the border. Currently, both Mexico's and America's economic elites have structured the entire system to keep wages as low as possible for both economies, 
while keeping much of the country in a state of massive precarity. And in the case of our poorer trading partners all over the world, underdevelopment, you could say. So living wage laws themselves would have minimum impact. What's needed is worker empowerment from the grassroots in all sectors of the economy, from rural farmers to auto factory workers. And to get there, we also need labor in the U.S. to mobilize for a global fair trade order, and that's not likely to come from this White House or any other after that. That's the main lesson of NAFTA, in fact. Corporations know this, which is why they initiate these deals and put a stranglehold on the government at the expense of our democracy. And the lesson that the entire labor movement, of course, must learn around the globe is that we can't rely on simple courts and laws to protect us. We need to start building our own institutions, our own movements, and our own systems of protecting whole communities and organizing them against corporate power. Although Donald Trump has often been branded as a so-called populist politician, what we've seen is that his appeals to the blue-collar American worker have often been coupled with various pro-corporate business moves such as corporate tax breaks um, and massive moves towards privatizing core functions of the government. So where does that leave workers who are in the public sector? We talked to Joseph McCartan, a history professor at Georgetown University and longtime observer of the labor movement throughout the 20th century, and he talked to us about how public and private sector workers are facing the same struggles and must revive militancy across the labor force in order to really make a difference and push back for equity. So um, Donald Trump was in Phoenix last night telling his audience that he's the real pro-worker candidate, um, doubling down on, of course, the claims that he made through the whole campaign, but he's not done anything to prove that. His quote-unquote massive infrastructure plan has yet to be unveiled. His budget has very little spending. Um, so I wanted to start off by asking you to evaluate Trump's claims to be pro-worker thus far. Well, I think that Trump's claims to be pro-worker don't really have much behind him. He's not done very much for working people. Um, there's been a lot of bluster, a lot of talk about how he'll renegotiate trade deals, about um, what he's going to do to uh, lift wages in the country and create jobs. But so far, there hasn't been uh, very much in terms of any of that. And instead, um, as his appointees to the NLRB show, he's heading in a very anti-union direction. Um, and um, I, I think he's done very little for working people. Speaking of his infrastructure plan, so-called, many of the proposals that he's moving towards seem to be very pro-business, pro-corporate contracting, and some skeptics um, see a sort of long-standing hidden conservative agenda there of privatizing massive amounts of public infrastructure and just shifting more government spending into corporate coffers. Um, you've written about both public and private sector labor as it relates to government and contracts. Um, do you see anything new or uh, something, uh, a, 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 a sort of a through line happening with Trump's proposals? Yeah, I think there is a through line that you can trace back to the Reagan era uh, and to the Grace Commission, which Reagan appointed, which called for the privatization of a lot of government functions. Um, and uh, clearly a, um, an important principle of the Trump approach to infrastructure is to 
make it a profit-making center for um, for American corporations. I think the recent um, announcement that Blackstone, uh, the largest private equity uh, company in the country, uh, has received a lot of Saudi money um, in hopes of creating a giant infrastructure fund to um, help to participate in some of these profit-making initiatives that might come from a Trump infrastructure plan sort of indicates the direction in which Trump's going. This has been a long-running theme among conservatives, but I think um, what you see in the Trump era is, as in so many ways with Trump, a kind of no-holds-barred approach to what had been this long-standing pursuit of privatization. We generally think of these so-called public-private partnerships is a basic part of uh, government functions now. It's almost expected that, you know, for development and construction projects that there is a massive amount of private sector involvement. But increasingly, we've seen privatization creep into core government agencies, um, be it at the federal level, as there are more cutbacks to the federal workforce, or even with things like privatizing public education. Um, how do you see that playing out under a Trump administration, and how might it differ or build upon what previous Republican administrations have done? Well, I think Trump has continued the kind of insidious logic of uh, austerity in the public sector. Um, we've starved the public sector of tax support in many ways, um, and we've faced budget deficits and, and um budget shortfalls as a result of that. And then they turn around and use the logic of those deficits to argue that we need private participation in public function. Um, and this has been happening in education with the spread of for-profit charter schools. Uh, and now they want to uh, introduce uh, these same kinds of principles into even things like air traffic control. Another aspect of his supposedly pro-worker but often pro-corporate rhetoric is um, kind of a turn towards economic nationalism. And uh, recently we saw the departure of Steve Bannon, who is sort of one of Trump's notorious champions of this kind of economic nationalism. Where do you think the administration is now, whether it's negotiations over NAFTA or just his general political positioning uh, with regard to how American jobs will fare in the global economy? Well, it's really clear that Trump, Trump at least, he struck a nerve um, as far as many American working people are concerned by sort of framing our economic problems in a nationalistic way. Um, workers have seen their uh, incomes frozen or even in decline in, in real terms over the past generation. And he offered what was a kind of simplistic explanation for this. That is that we got ourselves involved in a lot of trade deals that uh, were um, badly constructed. Um, and he has pledged that he'll put American workers first. I think that was, um, as Michael Moore said in uh, the fall, that that was kind of like music in the ears of many American workers, to hear somebody talk that way. Um, but whether or not that kind of simplistic framing can result in policies that really improve a lot of American workers really remains to be seen. Trump's talked a great game about trying to 
revise NAFTA. And last night in Phoenix, he uh, talked about maybe even what we have to get out of it entirely. He still continues to sort of hold that prospect out there, but it remains to be seen uh, whether or not he is able to, you know, reconstruct some of these deals at all. Uh, Certainly many in his party would oppose that. And even if those deals could be reconstructed, they don't really get at the problems that have been undermining the conditions of American workers over the years. And globalization's only one part of the story. We've seen a massive reconstruction in the labor market within the United States and the relationship of workers to their employers. And that isn't directly related to globalization. Um, and an economic nationalist position doesn't necessarily address things like how subcontracting, how the introduction of independent contract models into many Mm -hmm. job relations have really changed things for workers. And on that note, talking about economic nationalism, this was obviously the sort of pet project of Steve Bannon, along with the white supremacy part. Um, And Bannon is now gone. And people are kind of wondering if this is going to be just the turn back to just 100% regular Republican Party politics, and no more pretense even of really caring about working people. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether we're going to see this as a shift or whether Trump's infrastructure plans were always basically um, typical Republican Party policy? Well, I think the departure the, the uh, departure of Bannon won't really bring about a change in Trump's view of his economically nationalist rhetoric, at least around um, policy. Trump has talked this way for a long time, for a long time before he even knew that there was a Steve Bannon. You could hear him speaking this way even back in the Reagan era when he was critical of, um, you know, trade negotiations back then. So I think we'll continue to hear Trump speaking the same way. I don't think that this will mark a pivot point for him. Um, But, you know, his relations with his own party uh, leaders in Congress are becoming frayed. They would like to see such a turn. They would like to see a more traditional Republican approach to um, to economic questions, I think. Um, how that's going to play out right now is really, I think, difficult to predict, uh, as Trump himself has been um, so difficult to predict and so mercurial. So last week, several people departed Trump's business advisory council after his refusal to condemn white supremacist violence in Charlottesville. Um, And one of the people who departed before Trump officially disbanded the council was Richard Trumka of the AFL-CIO. But sort of given what we've been talking about thus far, what we've seen from this administration on its treatment of workers, were you surprised that it took that long for representatives of the labor movement to step down? I I was surprised. In some ways, it's understandable that Rich Trumka felt he had to participate in an economic council formed by the president to represent labor's interest. But for months now, it's been clear that um, there was really no working with Donald Trump 
for the trade union movement, uh, that he is not um, the friend of that movement. And um, it's too bad that it took the events in Charlottesville to really force a kind of formal break with Trump in terms of withdrawing from that council. Um, it was it was a long time coming, um, and it was the right move, I think, by Trump to get out. Yeah. So to pivot a little bit, um, your your research has focused on the Patco air traffic controllers strike and Ronald Reagan's infamous crushing of it. Um, so for our listeners who are maybe newer to labor history, can you give us a quick rundown of the Patco strike? and that, the significance of that moment for the trajectory of labor, particularly public sector labor, since? Sure. Um, that strike took place in August of 1981. Um, and it, I think, was probably the most significant labor battle of the late 20th century. The way we look back at, say, the Homestead strike in the 1890s as being the turning point back then, uh, what the Patco strike did is it kind of set a certain dynamic in place in American labor relations that's been very damaging for labor since. Uh, it happened at a, a time of great vulnerability for organized labor in the late 20th century. Globalization was beginning to, to change the equation. Industrial jobs were beginning to dry up in the 1970s. The union movement's core in American industrial jobs was starting to weaken. It was also a time when the um, public sector union movement was was still expanding. Um, it had grown in the 1960s. Um, teachers, sanitation workers, and others had led that growth. Uh, it had weathered some of the difficult times of the fiscal crises of the 1970s. Um, but the PATCO strike sort of froze the public sector movement in a sense. It had been expanding steadily its um, share of American workers who were unionized, um, and about 38% of public sector workers were unionized when the PATCO strike took place. That was way up from um, less than half of that only 15 years before 1981. So there had been a dramatic growth, but that growth sort of halted uh, after 1981. Today, it's about 36% in the public sector. And as we know, in the private sector, it's down to about 6% right now. So it was a big conflict happening at a crucial moment. Um, it unfolded in every state in the country. It was widely watched. And when Ronald Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, you know, more than 11,000 highly trained people uh, and banned them from reemployment uh, from the FAA for striking uh, and, and really was able to make that stick. Uh, that was devastating to the psychology of the movement in the 1980s. And it emboldened employers in the private sector to break unions uh, after that. And in the 1980s, we had a string of uh, failed strikes, um, the Phelps Dodge copper strike, um, the Hormel Meatpackers strike in Austin, Minnesota, and others where unions were beaten in the 80s and, and in many cases broken. 
Uh, and that accelerated, I think, the, the decline of organized labor uh, as a force in the late 20th century, even into the early 21st century. So it was it was a real turning point event. You noted how uh, sort of the 70s and uh, up to the early 80s, there's a shift in labor militancy. And uh, now we're facing a situation which is in many ways a contrast with uh, before, which is we have, you know, higher rates of public sector unionism than in the private sector to a great degree. You've talked about this growing division between public and private sector unionism. Given Trump's penchant for privatization, well, maybe you can start with what's happening at air traffic control now with one of his recent proposals and look at what it means for public versus private labor more generally. Sure. Well, first to to say what uh, is in the works right now and what uh, Republicans hope to do with the air traffic control system. Uh, Right now, Congress is considering something called the 21st Century Aviation Innovation Reform and Reauthorization Act, the AIR Act, they call it. Uh, It's being pushed by a Republican congressman named Bill Schuster of southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, And what that act would do is remove air traffic controllers from federal employment, create a uh, nonprofit corporation that would employ them, and that would, in effect, take over the American um, air transportation um, system uh, in its management. It would be a pretty big and radical move, and it would remove about – 11,000 air traffic controllers from federal employment and um, would, in effect, privatize the air traffic control system of the country. Now, that is a prospect, I think, that should concern a lot of people. This is a crucial government function. It always has been uh, run by the government in the United States. And some of the opponents... um, uh, of this plan, including Democrats like Peter DeFazio of Oregon, point out that uh, this um, proposed move really raises some constitutional issues because it would give uh, a private entity uh, that would be created to run this system the power, in effect, to tax uh, the American people through their air traffic, through the tax on uh, air, airline tickets. It would give them the power to tax, and it would see them taking over what had always been historically been a a government function. Um, That raises what what, um, constitutional lawyers call uh, a non-delegation issue. Uh, It's the same issue that led the Supreme Court back in the New Deal era to overturn the National Industrial Recovery Act of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. What the court argued then is that Uh, What Roosevelt tried to do is delegate to a non-governmental agency or agencies, the NRA code authorities of the 1930s, what really are governmental functions um, and opponents of this move that's now being uh, made uh, to privatize air traffic control say, in effect, the same kind of problem is raised with this proposal. I think for those of us who care about labor, Um, Privatization has been uh, a spear pointed at uh, the heart of the union movement. 
uh, over the past couple of decades because the public sector has been uh, labor's strongest point. Uh, and to the extent to which we can shift jobs out of the public sector, uh, we're basically making it more and more difficult to retain union strength in this country. Uh, and it's no coincidence that Schuster and others who are proposing this bill would like to weaken uh, the labor movement overall. So I think it's a, it's a pretty um, serious uh, prospect that we're facing. Right now, there is a union of air traffic controllers. It's called the National Air Traffic Controller Association, NATCA. Uh, and its leader, Paul Rinaldi, uh, has recently come out with tentative support for the privatization of air traffic control. Now, it's important to understand why they've done that, and that is that they have real concerns, and, and those concerns are credible, that um, the funding stream for the FAA has been uh, insecure over the past couple of decades, and we've had have had government shutdowns, uh, as we all know, that have actually caused vital functions to be suspended for a time. Air traffic control um, is something that you really can't tolerate being subject to those kinds of whims, um, Rinaldi argues. And the NACA points out that um, the FAA is way behind in replacing the air traffic controllers who are now retiring, many of whom had been hired to replace the controllers who were fired in 1981 by Reagan. So that there was a lot of hiring that happened in the FAA in the early 80s. Those folks have just moved out of the system in the last five years, and the FAA is behind the curve replacing them. And um, what Rinaldi and others who've grown frustrated with the current system is, have argued is, well, maybe, maybe this approach um, of Schuster and others makes sense for air traffic controllers. I think it's understandable why the union has taken that position. I don't agree with the position, and I think that uh, in the long run, it's uh, 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 not the way to go. Um, but um, I think it's a measure of the, the difficulties that air traffic controllers currently face that they're willing to consider this. So you recently wrote about the Friedrichs case, the Supreme Court, yes. um, and that was upended with the uh, death of Scalia, but it, the same arguments may soon get revived. And I was wondering if you could reflect in the contemporary moment under a Trump administration, what this might mean both for uh, civil servants um, at every level of government, and how does it relate more broadly to challenges facing organized labor, generally in terms of maintaining memberships, maintaining the integrity of their, their movement in the face of all of this massive assault? It's a great question, and it really points to the real vulnerability of labor at this moment and, and how we should view things like the effort to privatize the air traffic control system, which is as part of a larger assault on the very existence of unions in the public sector. Um, the Friedrichs case um, that um, came into a deadlock in the spring of 2016 was one in which um, anti-union people have argued that unions should have no right 
uh, under state laws to require the people that they represent to contribute to the costs of their representation. So right now, I think it's 22 states that have laws that allow unions to collect what are called agency fees or fair share fees, uh, in which if the union is representing you, if it's bargaining on your behalf, if, it if it's required to represent you in grievance uh, proceedings, et cetera, due to its duty of fair representation, that you should pay the cost of that, pay your fair share. Um, state law allows for this uh, in states like California and New York. Um, what the union opponents tried to do in Friedrichs was to argue that laws that allow for that infringe on workers' free speech. What if you don't like the politics of your union? Why should you pay anything to that union? Uh, even though a majority of your, your co-workers have voted it in and even though it bargains on your behalf as well. Should you be compelled to pay anything to it? Um, going back to 1977, the Supreme Court uh, has argued that, yes, you should be. Uh, you can be required if the state passes a law to that effect uh, to pay your fair share because it's not representing your politics. It's representing um, your workplace interest. Um, that uh, ideal has been in place since the 70s. Uh, it's allowed for the existence of these state laws. These state laws are crucial in allowing unions to fund themselves in the public sector by collecting from the workers that they represent. Um, the Friedrichs case would have overturned that. Uh, Antonin Scalia died before the case could be decided. The court deadlocked four to four but we're about to get a rehearing of the issue in a case called Janus versus AFSCME in the coming Supreme Court session. The same argument will be put forward by union opponents, but now with Trump having named Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, most observers think that the court's poised to overturn uh, the precedent the Supreme Court established back in the 70s. It's called the Abood precedent. Uh, and basically wipe out all of the laws that have allowed unions to um, collect agency fees in states like New York, California, and, and 20 others. That is potentially devastating for the union movement. One way to think about it is it would make the whole country, like Wisconsin uh, in the aftermath of Scott Walker's rise there, and what his Act 10 did to the union movement in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court threatens to now do to the public sector union movement really across the country. So it's an alarming threat. Uh, it's imminent. Uh, and the people who've been pursuing this um, course against the union movement have been carefully laying the groundwork for it now for for some decades. The moment has finally arrived. They are ready to plunge this spear into labor. Uh, if they can, they're going to try to do it with this case. And uh, everybody who cares about the future of the union movement, I think, needs to be aware of what's going on. Uh, and we need to be prepared to, to fight to um, continue to have a strong union movement in the public sector. Going forward, sure. um, you've come back again and again to this issue of the growing divide between public sector workers 
and um, the private sector, and both of them face challenges that are both similar and distinct. But you talked about needing sort of a, a greater sense of just, you know, across the board labor militancy. How should organizers approach this intersection between these two sectors when thinking about how to revive the labor movement overall, um, especially as whatever happens at the Supreme Court, um, you have right-to-work legislation gaining ground across the country right now? Uh, It's a great question, and uh, I guess the way I would approach it is this, is first to say that, you know, historically, um, public and private sector labor relations unfolded on two different, but in some ways, parallel tracks in our history. The New Deal didn't do anything for public sector workers. The Wagner Act didn't cover uh, federal workers, state workers, municipal workers. It took a long time for workers in the public sector to win their rights. Um, So these systems of labor law and organization evolved differently and at different times, but they've always kind of informed each other. So the passage of the Wagner Act in the 30s, the rise of the industrial union movement, those things really paved the way for public sector workers demanding the same kinds of rights uh, to unionize and to bargain that private sector workers had won. They started to win those rights in the 1960s. But as they were winning those rights, it was at precisely the time when the private sector union movement started to run into problems, problems that accelerated in the last quarter of the 20th century due to economic change, due to employer opposition, and many other things. And so while public sector workers lagged behind for a long time, uh, suddenly they became the workers who had more rights in in some ways than private sector workers that were more likely to unionize. Um, And uh, the, the balance of power started to shift within the labor movement. But historically, Um, These two wings of the American labor movement have been deeply tied to each other, deeply intertwined, and the health of one part of the labor movement uh, has always influenced the health of the other part. Uh, And as the private sector movement started to weaken in the late 20th and early 21st century, that exposed the public sector to uh, attack. And that's essentially what happened in places like Wisconsin under Walker. Union membership in Wisconsin had dropped, you know, quite a bit between the 1990s and when Walker was elected in uh, 2010. And what happened as a result of that was that there wasn't the strong private sector union alliance to protect public sector workers when Walker decided to attack them. Moreover, he could argue to Wisconsinites that, look, these teachers and others, they have defined benefit pensions. You don't have those. Why should you pay for their uh, benefits? Um, They have job security that you don't have. Um, And so the weakening of the private sector movement exposed the public sector movement. Now, what we have to have, I think, is that we need to close ranks now Uh, to defend labor and the intertwined nature of the public and private sector are are really uh, more apparent now than I think ever. And so 
I think today you're starting to see public sector workers, like teachers, like the Chicago teachers in 2012, like St. Paul teachers in 2013 and 14. Uh, when they started to go into collective bargaining, they did it by building alliances with people uh, in the private sector, with parents, with private sector unions in some cases, and others. And they started to approach collective bargaining in a, a way that um, some have started to call bargaining for the common good. So that public sector workers were making demands through their bargaining to protect private sector workers. For example, in Chicago, pointing out that the Chicago school system had squandered tens of millions of dollars in uh, interest rate swap deals, predatory deals that were concluded with Wall Street firms that cost Chicago taxpayers. The teachers were positioning themselves to defend Chicago's taxpayers, its workers uh, in general, uh, and using their collective bargaining process to try to do that. And I think we need to see more of that now. We need to see the public sector workers uh, fighting not just for themselves and their own survival, but attacking some of those forces that have been undermining workers in general across the country. Uh, and part of that's got to uh, lead to, I think, a, a revival of militancy in the union movement, as your question sort of pointed toward. I think one of the devastating impacts of the PATCO strike was that it, it, it accelerated the um, disappearance of the, of the strike of labor militancy in the United States. Before PATCO, the U.S. averaged about 280 uh, strikes per year that involved at least 1,000 workers. It was about 280 in the 60s, about 280 a year in the 70s. But in the 80s, it dropped to about uh, 83. And by the end of the century, it dropped to about 35. And in recent years, it's been closer to about uh, 15 or 20 per year. Um, a huge fall off and workers being able to engage in collective action. Uh, and we often point to things like union density as indicating the strength of the union movement or its weakness, and we've seen that density decline. But union density hasn't declined nearly as dramatically or as precipitously as union militancy, as workers' ability to engage successfully in collective action. Uh, and if there's one indicator that helps to explain why we've seen surging inequality over the past generation, uh, I, would, I would put my money on that indicator, that decline of workers' ability to act collectively. So this, I think our task in, in the labor movement today is we try to close ranks and public and private sector workers come together to defend each other is to find ways to begin to push back uh, and to engage in creative militancy. I'm not saying that we're going to revive strikes as they were in the 1950s, but to be able to go into the streets uh, and to change the uh, debate by doing that uh, in ways that can uh, imp be empowering for workers. I think, you know, just finally, I would say, look what happened on January 21st of this year when millions of people went into the streets 
to protest uh, Donald Trump's inauguration. Um, and, and especially so many women did that. That changed the course of this administration, I would argue. It put it on the defensive from the beginning. Uh, it was a historic move. And we need to find ways for the labor movement to mobilize people like that in defense of workers and unions in the 21st century. That was Joseph McCartan, author of Collision Course, Ronald Reagan, the Air Traffic Controllers and the Strike that Changed America, and director of the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. It's time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, I'm looking at a piece in the Huffington Post by Arthur Delaney titled, Bad Jobs and No Welfare Give Rise to a New Type of Charity, the Diaper Bank. That title, well, gives you a pretty good idea of what we're talking about. The gutting of cash assistance for poor parents, what's normally known as welfare, means that for a lot of families, diapers become an unaffordable luxury. The SNAP program, formerly known as food stamps, doesn't cover diapers or other necessities like, you know, toilet paper. And with childcare as expensive as it is, families are stuck making rough decisions about whether to return to work, let's not even talk about the lack of paid leave, or to stay home. Delaney writes, quote, Roughly 21% of children under age 5 live in poverty, according to the most recent census data, which amounts to more than 4 million kids. Among households that bought diapers in 2015, those in the bottom fifth of the income distribution, which an av- with an average annual income of $11,279, that's it spent about 10% of that income on diapers, according to a HuffPost analysis of the most recent data on consumer expenditures from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Our analysis updates previous research by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which found, which found a similarly grim picture. In a 2013 study examining diaper need, roughly 27% of parents reported worrying about whether they had enough diapers to change their children as often as they would like. Of those, 10% said they asked friends for help and 8% said they delayed changing a wet diaper. Changing diapers regularly is crucial to keeping babies comfortable, happy, and ideally not crying. It's also a health issue. A wet diaper can increase an infant's risk of dermatitis and urinary tract infections, which in turn can force parents to miss work for doctor visits. Not being able to change a baby's diaper often enough also stresses the parents, which can affect the whole family. Multiple studies have shown that children of stressed parents are at greater risk of developing emotional, social, and behavioral problems. End quote. Among other things that I learned from this piece is that diaper need is actually an indicator of postpartum depression, even when controlling for other factors. Many daycares will not accept children if their parents cannot drop off a bunch of diapers with them. But if you can't get daycare, you can't get to work to, you know, pay for those diapers. Delaney suggests that the U.S. might think about a child allowance or benefit such as many European countries give. It would be universal, meaning that rich and poor parents and everybody else in the middle, would get a monthly amount of cash similar to Social Security. Tax breaks, he notes, are not enough. They require you to have income coming in in the first place. We should also, of course, have universal health care, paid family leave, subsidized daycare, and why doesn't the government just give us diapers? Girl can dream, right? 
It's a fascinating, if depressing, piece that looks at welfare reform, the low-wage economy, our frayed or non-existent social safety net, and how we could do so much better. Check it out. And my ARG pick of the week is called America, Home of the Transactional Marriage in the Atlantic. One of the favorite themes in the way that we talk about our jobs today is through the prism of work-life balance, even though people seem to have a hard time really defining what that is. And like that other political canard of family values, a lot of it turns on assumptions about proper gender roles and what a normal family looks like. But that's increasingly out of sync with the way that we work. In Victor Tan Chen's analysis of the evolution of American marriage in the post-war era, he talks a lot about values, but more about how we are valued by society today, and it's not looking good. Why are we marrying later in life less frequently and starting families outside of marriage? Is it a sign of cultural progress, perhaps, or social distress? Chen, a former journalist colleague of mine, as well as an academic and a longtime observer of American work life, writes, quote, some tend to stress that the cultural values of the less educated have changed, and there's some truth to that. But what's at the core of those changes is a larger shift. The disappearance of good jobs for people with less education has made it harder for them to start and sustain relationships. The decline of marriage can be seen in one sense as a decline of tradition, and for many people this signifies kind of a good thing. It's more room for individualism and independence. And for women, it's definitely a sign of a form of feminist emancipation and economic empowerment. On the other hand, it's not enough to say that we are choosing to marry less. At some point, what appears to be a lifestyle choice starts to look more and more like a sacrifice. For many, marriage is no longer the goal, but it can be a useful benchmark and a byproduct of long-term stable family relationships, and those are increasingly scarce, as we all know. This is not to fetishize marriage as the centerpiece of a healthy adulthood, but it is to show that as a society, family stability, no matter how you define your family, how it's configured in your community, whatever your household size, background, or gender and sexual identity, it's important for building strong communities and social networks. And therefore, what we've often sanctified in the realm of family values, religion, or tradition should instead be broadened into a more open sense of what meaningful human relationships are in the 21st century. Sadly, the constraints of neoliberal capitalism render many of us feeling unworthy of even those basic human bonds. Chen recalls, quote, in doing research for a book about workers' experiences for being, of being unemployed for long periods, I saw how people who once had good jobs became, over time, quote, unmarriageable. I talked to many people without jobs, men in particular, who said that dating, much less marrying or moving in with someone, was no longer a viable option. Who would take a chance on them if they couldn't provide anything? That kind of despair embodied in such a comment, laden with materialistic, distinctly masculine senses of self-worth, is the flip side of patriarchy and the underbelly of Americans' rugged capitalist individualism. Of course, marriage isn't, or at least shouldn't be, the end-all be-all of anyone's life, but the fact that so much is invested in this one kind of relationship, very conventionally defined, including one's entire financial and social worth, says a lot about how we value life both inside and outside of the workplace today. 
and as growing numbers of people find themselves excluded from the workforce and are unable to gain a foothold in the economy, we need to find radical new ways of reevaluating our lives and our social and romantic relationships so that we can rebuild society from the ground up and give us a chance to live a full life outside of work, but also support ourselves and those we love in the way that everyone deserves. Often marriage is seen as an institution that can support families' autonomy and thereby decrease the need for the state to shoulder the burden of caring for people. But it's time to reverse that equation. Tan argues a strong social safety net and universal health care and a meaningful connection with a meaningful job is a good place to start. And while that seems like a very faraway prospect for many in the U.S. today, Chen draws comparisons with Canada, which has a relatively robust infrastructure of social, medical, and job supports, even for the poorest in society. And the differences are stark. Quote, ample support for worse-off families may keep the stresses of unemployment and financial problems more generally from tearing couples apart. If we start with the foundation of a strong community, good personal relationships tend to follow from that, and it becomes a really virtuous circle. What we can no longer expect couples to do is to fill the gap in human needs on a purely personal level when we have a public that cares so little for the common good. And that's all for this week's Belabored, episode 133. Join us again in two weeks. Thanks again to Natasha for making us sound good as usual. And thank you for listening. If you have a workplace justice campaign, whether you're working for the government or you're working for a private boss, we want to hear about it. And if you have a free trade horror story you want to tell us or you want to talk about how to make a fairer trade system, we want to hear from you too. Get us on Twitter at hashtag Belabored or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org over and out this life is hard so hard i must go eight twenty five we can't go you've been listening to descent magazine's belabored podcast for the entire archive of past episodes visit descentmagazine.org join us online using hashtag belabored <laughs>